I'm not particularly a football fan, but I have seen on TV different times when football teams have won championships or leagues or something like that. Is that about right, Joe? Yeah. Um, and they've arrived home to their home city and they've done like open top bus tours and the adoring crowds are like hanging out of windows and hanging off lampposts to get a glimpse of their team. That's how I imagine Palm Sunday to be. Except Jesus's open top bus wasn't an open top bus, it was a donkey. Um, and maybe people weren't hanging out of like apartment windows, but they were standing at the side of the road waving palm branches, a little bit like um, people might be waving uh, team flags or scarves or, or um, football tops or whatever. Um, and uh, the crowd would have been cheering Jesus on just like they would have been cheering on their, their, their winning team. Um, they were whole, the people that were cheering for Jesus, some of them probably had no idea who Jesus was. But they just got swept up in the momentum and the, the kind of the crowd of this cheering and this um, kind of whatever it is. I, I, to be honest, that would be me. Like if, say, Chelmsford City Football Club had won the World Cup. That's not even possible, is it? Like, <laughs> and there was a tour in, they'd come to Chelmsford and they were cheering, like the whole crowd, the whole town had turned out to cheer for this team. Um, I would have just been like, yay, it's a big party, there's lots of people. And I'd have been cheering as well, even if I had no idea who I was actually cheering for. Um, so I'm sure that there was people on Palm Sunday that would have been cheering for Jesus, not even really knowing who they were cheering or what it was all about, but they would have got swept up in all of the excitement. Um, but there would have been some people that had heard of Jesus, that had e maybe even met him, or would have been impacted, their lives would have been impacted by him. And they were there cheering him on because they thought um, that he was going to do something incredible. They were holding him up as their savior, a military leader even perhaps, one who was going to change their destiny just perhaps not in the way that they wanted, thought, or expected. But things change so quickly, don't they? You don't have to look far on social media to see people go from zero to hero or hero to zero very quickly. Celebrities are made very easily these days, and they are also ripped from their pedestals very quickly. For Jesus, in the space of only a few short days, he went from being adored by the masses, cheered on by the crowds, to those same crowds shouting and demanding that he be crucified, that he be put to death. What for? For claiming to be God. To be put to death for healing the sick and casting out demons. To be put to death for offending the religious leaders. I would love to encourage you over these next few days as we walk towards Easter to read the chapters, chapter 15 of Mark particularly, just to read it slowly. It's quite long, so I'm just going to pick a few verses out this morning. But read that chapter and allow God to use your imagination as you read it. Or if you've got the Bible app, you can listen to it being read to you. Um, but it talks all about Jesus being um, judged before Pilate. It talks about him being mocked by the soldiers. It talks about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and then the betrayal 
by Peter. I'd love it if this week all of us took time to slowly walk through that chapter and to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through it because I absolutely believe that the Holy Spirit will speak to you through it. And I'm just going to make three comments this morning. As I um, kind of meditated on this chapter a a week or so ago, I felt like um, there were three things that I wanted to say. um, And check this out. This proves I'm a proper preacher. They all begin with the letter S. I feel like three S's. You might even remember it. Um, So from the... From Mark 15, in verse 5, it says this. Well, I'll just read the beginning bit. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and held and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Said, asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? How many things? So see how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. And then it goes on. Jesus was silent before his accusers. That's the first S for silent. He made no reply to Pilate, to his accusations to the accusations made by the chief priests. And I think Mark here makes a specific reference to Jesus not responding to these accusations. He was silent. Mark is is, um, making reference to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah years before prophesied about a suffering servant. The suffering servant in Isaiah is is referred to as giving his life as a ransom for many. And then it says that he was led off like a lamb to slaughter who doesn't open his mouth. Jesus didn't defend himself. He didn't argue his case. You could say that that's because he knew what was about to happen and so he'd resigned himself to the fact, well, I'm going to die anyway, so there's no point. But I don't think that that would have been Jesus' train of thought. Jesus knew what was about to happen, but he wasn't sulking or he wasn't lost for words. He knew who he was. He knew that he was, God was with him, that he was covered, that he had no need to defend himself because he knew that God would have the last word. You know, this comment from Mark in verse 5 about Jesus making no reply, Jesus being silent, shows that Mark absolutely thought that Jesus was the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied about. Jesus was the servant king, the Messiah. And Mark wants all of his readers back in the day, but also today, to know that he totally believed that Jesus was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Messiah? Is he the suffering servant, the the servant king? Or is he simply just a good role model? If we think that Jesus is the Messiah, the servant king, 
then our answer demands a response. How do we deal with Jesus' silence? Does it amaze us or does it anger us? <clears throat> what does Jesus' silence bring up in us? How do we respond to that? Perhaps you feel right now that Jesus is silent on something that you regard as important and you really want to hear him on. I read a book last year uh, by Pete Gregg called God on Mute, and I would uh, highly recommend it if you would like to read it. Um, <clears throat> and I'd forgotten, but Pip reminded us in our Lent WhatsApp group of a poem he wrote, um, which is in that book. <clears throat> and it's called The Silence. First, there is prayer. And where there is prayer, there may be miracles. But where miracles may not be, there are questions. And where there are questions, there may be silence. But silenced may be more than absence. Silence may be presence muted. Silence may not be nothing but something to explore, defy, accuse, engage. And this is prayer. And where there is prayer, there may yet be miracles. Do you feel like God is silent on something? Silence may be presence muted. I love that line. <clears throat> but on the silence theme, how, how do you take Jesus' example of silence in a situation of accusation? You know, if we have been wronged, or if accusations are flying around about us, how hard do we find it to keep silent? To not fight our corner. To know that God is with us and for us and has the last word. <clears throat> there was some time last year where Graham and I were going through a bit of a tricky situation. And I felt really clearly that God said to me to be quiet. And both those of you that know me... <laughs> You've laughed already. Um, silence is something that I press into, um, but in company, keeping silence isn't something that I do often. And I felt in this situation that we were going through that, that God really clearly said to me, as Jesus was silent before his accusers, you need to be silent. And I found that really hard, really hard, because I wanted to speak out. I wanted to protect people's reputation, protect our reputation, to tell people the truth of what had really happened. But God had asked me to be silent. And I was. <laughs> it was a lesson for me. And has it resolved the situation where people know the truth? No, not necessarily. But do I know that I was obedient to God and I did as he asked? Yes. Silence. Is there a situation right now where you need to hold your tongue? 
where you need to keep quiet. Do you need to be silent before God so that you can hear him speak to you specifically about something to guide you perhaps? Or in a place of real honesty and safety, is Jesus's or is God's apparent silence right now just utterly frustrating? And you know what? He can handle it if we say that to him. So firstly, Jesus was silent before his accusers. Secondly, in his suffering, he worshipped. Verse 33 in, in chapter 15. At the sixth hour of darkness, in, of the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, Laba Sabatani," which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Then some of those standing near him said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him, he said. Jesus worshipped in his suffering. Verse 33, Eloi, Eloi, Labbath Sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a direct quote from Psalm 22. It's only one line that's been written down in Mark's account. But in, that, in Jewish culture, um, it was known that most people would have known that psalm's off by heart. And if you were to quote the first line of a psalm, it was just a given that you were quoting the whole thing. It was implicit that you were reciting the whole psalm. So Jesus is quoting, hanging on the cross, the opening line of Psalm 22. The Psalms were the worship songs of Israel. So Jesus is hanging on the cross dying and he begins to worship. And interestingly, if you look at John's gospel, he records that Jesus says just before he took his final breath, it is finished, which is the last line of Psalm 22. So in Jesus' most excruciating moment, as he is breathing his last few breaths, he is worshipping by using Psalm 22. In his suffering, he worships. What is our response when we encounter suffering? Suffering to whatever degree. Pain from grief. Pain from life not working out as we had hoped. Pain from lost dreams and hopes missing loved ones, however we are suffering, what is, is our response to worship? Can we, in that place of suffering, acknowledge who Jesus is, all that God has done, all that he is doing, and all that he's going to do? Worship is all the more powerful when we are desperate, I think, when we don't feel like it, when we are in pain, 
because worshipping God, knowing who he is and all that he has done, worship is a decision. No matter how we feel. I read a quote from a friend on Facebook uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm just going to read you the quote because I thought it was great. He said this, I came out with this phrase the other day, that things grow in manure. And as I pondered, I realized that manure is a rejected substance with not a great fragrance. And yet, things grow in it. I don't know if life feels like that. I don't know if life feels like that at present. I've had a number of situations where it just looks and feels like manure. I'm staring at scenarios and I'm thinking that good could come out of this. I'm sorry, and I'm thinking what good could come out of this. All I know is that beauty does come out of ashes, that there will be resurrection. Growth in my life will come out of the most unexpected places and experiences. Things grow in manure. When we are feeling like we're suffering, when we are in pain, when things aren't going as planned, where we are dealing with stuff day in, day out, we might feel like we're living in or we're walking through manure right now. Suffering in ways that we might share with one another and know about, but suffering in ways that we have no idea about. Uh, that we have no idea about. Only you know and God knows. God's encouragement to each and every one of us right now is that good things grow out of manure. And his invitation to us from that place of pain and suffering is to worship. You know, when we planted this church 11 years ago, our eldest daughter was six months old. Um, and so we plant, our church planting journey began then and we had th two other children in that process. And uh, if you've had children, you know that it's not always straightforward. Um, there's, there's ups and downs. There's a lot of sickness. Uh, life can be hard. There's a lot of lack of sleep. Um, and to be honest, I can honestly say that um, on many Sunday mornings, my clarity of thought was not very clarity. I didn't have much clarity of thought. That's a better sentence. <laughs> um, uh, and, and just three, three and a half years ago, my dad died. Um, and I can honestly say that this community of believers, this church family, um, helped carry me through. Because actually, this was the place I wanted to be to worship. Because at that point, when um, my dad was diagnosed, and then when he died very shortly afterwards, being in the presence of God with many of you, it felt like I was being held, held by you collectively, but also held by the presence of God when the person that used to hold me was no longer here. Worship is always a choice. And especially when we're in pain and we're suffering. And our example is Jesus. He chose to worship the Father in the most painful moment. Will we? So Jesus was silent before his accusers. He suffered. He worshipped while he suffered. And finally, he surprised people with his death.
I'm just going to read from verse 42. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When, they, when he had learned from the centurion that this was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen and placed it, it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, of, Jesus, of Joseph, was there where, saw where he was laid. Jesus surprised people with his death. He died quickly. Pilate was surprised. Now, just a bit of context in this. Um, crucifixion was the Romans' favoured um, favored way of killing people, and it was actually quite common. And they would have um, kind of poles erected outside of Jerusalem, and people would often hang on the, on the crosses for days in, before they died. Um, you die from suffocation when you're crucified, and it takes, generally takes a long time. So people would be going about their business, walking in and out of the city, and they would see people hanging. And I, I imagine that, that Pilate would have been watching from a distance, probably feeling responsible. And Jesus' Jesus's story was very different from everybody else that they had crucified at that time. He died quickly, and that definitely caught people's attention. So even in his death, Jesus was surprising people. And did they, they did, little did they know that kind of two days later, they were, he was going to surprise them even more by coming back to life and walking along, uh, along the ground. Um, but how has Jesus surprised you? Maybe recently, maybe over the time that you have either been exploring who he is, hearing about him, or knowing him and following him. Are we on the lookout for Jesus to surprise us? He surprised those officials in his death. How has he caught your attention recently? I was recently meditating on the transfiguration in Matthew 17, uh, where Jesus has an experience with Moses and Elijah on the top of a mountain. Um, and he's taken Peter, James and John, his besties, with him up the top of this mountain. Um, and Mark seven, uh, sorry, Matthew 17 verse 5 really stood out to me. Um, there's a voice comes from heaven, kind of through the clouds, and it says, um, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, if you've ever read any of the Gospels, you know that um, earlier on in, uh, in, well, just as Jesus begins his ministry, he's baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And there is a voice from heaven that comes out and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And it's a, it's, it's a direct kind of reference to that. But the addition is those three words where this voice from heaven says, listen to him. How has Jesus surprised you recently? He surprised me when I was meditating on this. I felt like God was giving me a fresh invitation to listen to him. Now, if you'd have asked me, you know, do you listen to God? Do you? I'd have said, yes, 
I do. And I try and carve out time daily to listen to him. But I felt like it was a kind of a, just that extra invitation of, come on, Libby, don't just give me the nod of the light. Yeah, I'm going to try to listen. But actually, will you sit and, and silence your heart and listen to me? I was surprised, but I was also pleased. It has renewed my, my vision for, for listening better to God. What has Jesus surprised you with? Maybe you've seen people physically healed. Maybe you have, um, have seen incredible answers to prayer and provision, miracles of provision, money at specific times that you've needed, phone calls offering you different things when you've needed them. We're so often surprised by God, even when we get the answers to prayer that we have been asking for. But I wonder if sometimes we miss the surprises of God because we're too busy living a busy life that we don't even notice. I'm going to stop there. Jesus was silent before his accusers. He worshipped in his suffering and he surprised the onlookers. What is our response to Jesus' example of silence, of worshipping in suffering? And how has Jesus surprised us most recently? I'd love to just pray and to invite the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. So um, if, if you're comfortable too, why don't you stand up? If you'd rather stay seated, then... Standing up isn't any more holy than sitting down. Um, And I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to increase his presence. It might be you want to close your eyes. It might be you want to hold your hands out as a way of just saying, I'm I'm here, I'm ready, God. I'm, I'm up for listening. And let's just wait and we'll wait in his presence. But Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here already. And I ask that you would increase your presence. that you know each of us in this room. And your desire is to meet with us this morning. We wait on you, Holy Spirit. more of you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus.
We're ready to listen, Jesus. It might be that you just feel a real sense of peace, and that is the presence of God just resting on you. It might be that you feel warmth or tingling in your hands. Again, that's sometimes a physical sensation of the Spirit of God just just resting on you. We say more, Lord. We don't want to leave here this morning without meeting with you and hearing you speak. felt like God just has given me a couple of pictures. Um, one, I think, is for Ryan. Um, I, I don't. Are you musical at all? No. I, well, I, the, the phrase I got was that I felt like God was saying, I'm going to give you a capo. And my limited understanding of guitar playing is that a capo changes the key. I'm looking at Mike. Does that make sense? Is that what, is that what a capo does? effectively. So it changes the situation relatively. It changes the key easily without really having to do anything other than just clip it onto the guitar, I think. Um, But the sense I got from that was that I feel feel like maybe God's saying something needs to change or I'm going to change the situation for you, but it's going to be relatively straightforward. So can I just pray? Is that right? Chris, would you mind just uh, laying hands on, on Ryan for me? Thank you, Anne. Yeah, Holy Spirit, will you just increase your presence in Ryan now? And Lord, if that picture's from you, then will you just uh, change that situation that needs changing? And will you do it relatively easily and pain-free? Lord, we thank you for him and all that you're doing in and through him. And we ask for more. Yeah. Yes, Lord. The other picture I had was more general. Um, feel free to carry on praying if you want to. but <laughs> um, Or if anyone else has got any more words for Ryan, then do go and chat to him at the end. Um, the other picture I had was of, um, again, repotting plants. Again, I'm not a musician and I'm not a gardener. Um, but the sense I got was that in you, you need to... Re- pot seedling put take seedlings from little pots and put them in bigger pots so they can grow and the sense i got and i i don't know whether it's for anybody specifically but that um there's then there's a sense of movement is needed change is needed in order to be able to grow um i'm i'll take that for myself um but lord god we ask that that for each of us that that is relevant lord where change can sometimes be hard We ask that you would help us embrace that, 
so that we can grow and, and put down deeper roots and know that we are yours, that we can thrive, not just survive.